John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger in where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. So because of this, this incident, a description has been put in front of Thomas's name across the ages of history. And that description is Doubting Thomas. And maybe for that reason, he's your favorite disciple. Uh, I'm sure you have them ranked 1 through 12. Um, we, we certainly live in an age where uh, doubt is having its day. Uh, it is celebrated as a hallmark of sophistication. And so perhaps when we hear Thomas's description uh, as a doubter, maybe we hear smart Thomas. But I think it's worth considering for a little while this morning uh, some of the nuances of Thomas's story. If we're going to have doubt as our companion, uh, either by choice or not by choice, uh, I think we can learn uh, some, some pretty important things from, from this man who's come to be called Doubting Thomas. I came to New York City for the very first time um, with a tri- on a trip with my family in, uh, in high school. And my dad, I uh, was just starting to get into doing theater. And uh, that had been a really tough thing for my father because he was one of those dads who came to football practice. To practice. Okay, not just to the game. So, um, and, and then there would be coaching, personal coaching after practice for things that I could do better. And, and that's appropriate. So when I told him, hey, I decided to quit the varsity team and do theater. Yeah, yeah right. You're resonating here in Brooklyn, but in South Carolina. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, dad, dad brought us, he, he, was, he was good in that he... Uh, we had lots of reasons he was good, but this is one good thing he did. He let us each pick a show. He was like, we're going to see what the, we're gonna see what the best looks like. If you're going to do this theater, right? He's like, if you're going to play football, you should be the best. If you're going to do theater, you should be the best. Let's see what it looks like. Um, and we got to pick a show. So I, with my faith-filled Southern Bell conservative mother, chose to play Rent. And uh, we walked out of there, and uh, it was one of the most awkward, what did you think of that experiences of my life. Um, my mother was utterly scandalized, and I was like, that music was incredible. I'll be learning all the songs, and then I did. Um, 
There's a line in one of the songs in Rent that says, uh, the opposite of war isn't peace. It's creation. Thank you, musical theater folks. Um, The opposite of war isn't peace. It's creation. And that line stuck with me uh, for one reason or another. Maybe it was the trauma of uh, my mother's reaction. Um, But it's one of those things that I've come back to in my head a bunch and tried to imagine uh, the exact opposite (laughs) of, of, of many different ideas, right? Things that you guys know as well, right? You hear people say these types of opposing ideas. Courage is not the opposite of fear, but it's acting bravely in spite of your fear. And um, being a pastor gives you the opportunity to c- compare these kind of opposing ideas all the time. When you, when you think about the depth and mystery, the complexity attached to being a human being, you have to wrestle with some of these tensions, <laughs> some of those opposites. And Anne Lamont said, said this, and I, I think it's a pretty good one. So she said, the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's certainty. I think we can do a pretty bad disservice to the life and message of Jesus when we describe faith in him or faith in his message uh, like a Disney movie. Sort of get this, believe this, do this, and all your dreams will come true. If you track the trajectory of the disciples' lives, that's not exactly the way the narrative goes. Um, we, we might say instead, believe this, follow this, and your life will still be hard, sometimes full of painful doubts. You might have to get an entirely new set of dreams, but you will have the chance to know the deepest kind of love imaginable. There's an old story of Martin Luther, the reformer, who was famously approached by an elderly woman in his congregation who was confessing her own struggle with doubt. And the conversation went like this. Luther said, tell me, when you recite all the creeds, do you believe them? And the woman said, yes, most certainly. And Luther said, then go in peace. You believe more than I do. Every person I've ever known who's had faith has wrestled on some level with doubt at some point, and we shouldn't imagine that that diminishes the quality of their faith. There's not nearly as much certainty as we might wish in the world, and so no no matter what you believe, right? No matter what you believe, whether you're a Christian or an atheist, you're you're taking it at some level on faith. And that means at some point you're probably going to be dealing with doubt. Some of you know that you you are utterly full of faith, and yet there are times when you are profoundly tempted to doubt. And some of you are here and you are utterly entrenched in doubt. It is your staked out position. And yet there are moments, maybe they're few and far between, where you're tempted to believe. And anyone who pretends it's certainty is selling something. We live in a complex world. How do you... How do you make sense of Nepal... This week, we live in a complex world. Dostoevsky said, The death of one innocent child calls into question the existence of God. (laughs) 
But we're also in the middle of a story, right? It's a complex story that has so many facets, it's hard to get our our minds and hearts around. But also we're in the middle of it, and we know at least fundamentally we're not like the primary storyteller here. And uh, we, we don't have as much control as sometimes we might like to imagine about how things are going to end or when they're going to end or in what quality they're going to end or how the threads of the narrative are going to be wrapped up. So there's so much room for doubt. So we need the patron saint of doubt. We need Thomas. But I want to begin, uh, you're like, you already began, sir. It's been a while. Uh, I'd like to really begin um, by saying that I think Thomas deserves a couple of other descriptions in front of his name other than doubting Thomas. Um, Just want to run through a, a couple of moments where Thomas shows up, and there's not that many, but Thomas had p- paid a cost to follow Jesus, a profound cost. Um, and maybe we won't ever know all the layers of the cost that those who followed Jesus in those, those first days were paying. But before Jesus was known, before he was accredited by his miracles and his miraculous power, Thomas had followed him. He was, he was in the list of those that Jesus had chosen, and Thomas had an also known as. I don't know if you pick that up in the text, but Thomas had an AKA. The the text says he was also known as Didymus, which means the twin. And as far as we know, Thomas's twin was not a disciple. So he had left his family. He had risked much. One of the most intimate relationships that we we know between, between twin family members And he had risked much to follow Jesus. Before the cross, he had walked with Jesus for three full years, even as the temperature of resistance around Jesus' ministry was rising over and over again. He had bet everything on Jesus being who he said he was. And then, slowly but surely, his faith had been rewarded with experience. He wasn't just a witness, but he was a participant in the three years of Jesus' ministry. So you just go back through for a few moments and imagine the things he had seen. The blind see for the first time. The paralyzed get up and take their mats and walk. Leprosy, this scourge of the day which separated you from community, fell off of people's skin and they were reconnected to their loved ones. This guy sat in the splash zone for the Sermon on the Mount. First row. Then when he had questions about Jesus' parables when they were more cryptic and hard to understand, he got a private lesson on the side with Jesus. Then you think of, of especially the last week, right? They had just gone on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem with the cries of Hosanna. But Thomas had had a first row seat as he saw the crowds turn. He knew those who were plotting, those in power to get rid of Jesus, but he had stayed close. He knew Jesus' claims and he knew Jesus' power to overcome anything. And so he placed his faith, <laughs> doubting Thomas, <laughs> placed his faith in Jesus wholeheartedly and then Jesus died and everything unraveled but it wasn't at least it wasn't that Thomas was afraid to stick with Jesus we have another instance where he hadn't just paid a cost he had faced fear knowing full well what he was walking into Thomas had courageously faced fear in John 11 there's this famous scene where Thomas speaks up the religious leaders have been plotting to kill Jesus, so he had to leave the area around Jerusalem, and they went into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, the disciples and Jesus had their most fruitful time of ministry. People are coming out in droves to be near Jesus, to hear his teaching on the kingdom, to bring people who, who need to encounter Jesus' healing love. So, they're 
So, yes, amen. That was wonderful. We need more of that responsiveness, glory, amens, things like that. Um, feel free to lead us out. Okay. They're in the wilderness, and then Jesus' friend Lazarus gets sick. And if they're going to go be near Lazarus' family in this crucial time, they're going to have to go back near Jerusalem, back near those who are plotting to kill Jesus. And the disciples reason with him. <laughs> and they say, listen, things are going amazing out here. And if you go back, you know they're plotting to kill you. We narrowly escaped last time. Let's not do that. Let's stay out here. Lazarus will probably be okay. They try to talk Jesus out of going back. And so he tells them, verse 14... Of John 11. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. But for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us go that we may die with him. I think you might could call him pessimistic Thomas. Be fair. But doubting is a little bit harsh in the sense that he knew he was going to die. And he's still like, all right, let's go. Paid a significant cost. Faced his fears with courage. Maybe he is pessimistic, but there's a heroism in his pessimism. One more instance for Thomas. They're talking with Jesus before the cross. After the incident of seeing the resurrection power in Lazarus' life. So we know right now anything is possible. Jesus says to them, and I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Thomas' question elicits Jesus, one of Jesus' most famous statements. I am the way. The truth and the life. You can hear the pain in Thomas's question. I want to know. I want to follow you. But there's so much I don't understand. There's so much I can't put together. And Jesus says relationship. These Disparate threads are going to be woven together, not in you being able to dot every I or cross every T in the way of certainty, but being in relationship with me. I am the way. So often in our minds we imagine religious life is like God has pointed us to an end, he's given us a list of rules by which we can get to the end and we're following them and we're like, okay, now I'm supposed to go here and we're, we're, we're sorting it out and we're wondering, is God going to help at all? And Jesus seems to indicate that it's exactly the opposite. It's like we're walking as friends. And he's like, left here, pause here. If not, I'll just meet you at the end. So maybe Thomas is a doubter, but he had paid a great cost. He had faced fear. He had dealt with pain. So if he's a doubter, he's also a man of great faith and courage and honesty. And for one, I'm glad that I know those things can live together in someone. But when Jesus died, Thomas was crushed. He was scattered. Fearful, devastated. Must have gone through the stages of grief. He appears angry and despondent when he is approached later by his friends. And so when we pick up Thomas' story, 
in this text, he's alone. Verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. A small detail, but the people that he belonged with, he wasn't with. His doubt, right? At this point, doubting Thomas isn't doubting Thomas yet. He's devastated Thomas. His doubt wasn't doubt at all. He knew for certain that Jesus had died and he was crushed by the disappointment and so he had isolated himself. And I've said things like this to us before, but in, in one of the things I think I could say that I've learned in this six years of our church existing is that where you go when you're devastated matters. Where you go with your most profound questions matters. Where you go with your pain matters. If you imagine I need to go sort this out on my own before I come back and connect with community, you will make a profound mistake. We isolate to fix ourselves, and in that isolation, things get worse. Thomas is disconnected from his community, and by our best guesses, he's wallowing in pain. He's dealing with it somehow in his own way, and he misses the very thing that would answer his agony with joy. He misses the moment that Jesus shows up. There are many times the grace that we need desperately shows up in the middle of community and we've withdrawn. So after Thomas misses Jesus, then he does become doubting Thomas because he has to rely on secondhand information and it's not convincing. Verse 24 again. Now Thomas, also known as Denimus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I've been trying to think. What is Thomas saying with this ultimatum? At least he's saying, friends who I've walked with for three years, I don't believe you. They're giving him probably the greatest news he will ever hear, and yet devastation had so gripped his heart that he was not able to hear it. It was, he wasn't ready. His disappointment was the realest thing in his life at this point. And so it was too thick for even a glimmer of hope to get through. And so Thomas says with, I don't know, at least a an, an, an twinge of anger, a twinge of despondency. I, I can imagine him kind of being like, are you serious? Unless God meets my exact requirements, I will not believe. I think it's safe to say his doubt is a cover for his pain. Our doubts are often covers. They protect us. Thomas's doubt protects him against looking foolish, and so maybe yours does as well. Protects against appearing too enthusiastic, a cardinal sin in Brooklyn in 2015. <laughs> appearing too enthusiastic about something. So our doubt makes us sophisticated questioners. 
Our doubt protects against our wounds. I doubt because I have been so hurt that I'm not going to open my heart again to the possibility of risking relationship. And there is always risk in relationship. I doubt because the cost to go on feels like too much. I doubt because of fear. You know, people told me when, before I planted a church that the people who started the church with us, uh, that many of them would not make it. They wouldn't be around for a while. And I was like, that's probably true in a lot of places, but that's not going to be true here. Woo! Our community is so rich, so incredible, so, so real, so authentic, so in each other's lives. There's no way anyone could possibly allow doubt to take them away from this magnificence. If you're checking out our church today, six years in, and you don't come back next week, I'm probably never going to know. I lose sleep over some people that aren't here. It's because I love them so much and because I wonder why they have chosen something different at this point, right? And we're all in the middle of a story. So I say that without judgment. I just say it with disappointment and pain. Um, Some of those people that I thought would always be here, of course, they're not here. And I think some of them just ran into the cost of being too much at some point. It just feels safer, at least for a while, to doubt. Our doubts are very often a cover for something. But the thing is, doubt is usually not a final end place. It's not like where we want to land. <laughs> I like to just pull up and live my life in the cul-de-sac of doubt for the rest of my, for the rest of my time. So doubt covers for fear, it covers for pain, it covers for cost. And so Thomas earns his nickname in this instance. He doubts with fervor. He doubts that Jesus is alive and you can understand why. Are these guys just saps who will believe anything? Are they delusional from their, groove, from their grief? From their groof? Groof is also hard to deal with, along with grief. If he couldn't stop himself from dying, do any of his claims matter anymore? It's over, fellas. Give it up. Thomas's pessimism finally overwhelms his courage. He's like, come on, wake up. We went back. We were ready to die. And he didn't even let us die with him. And so he gives this ultimatum full of anger or full of despair. Unless I see this, I will not believe. I wonder, do you have a statement like that in your heart? Amen. Yes, I do. Unless God shows up for me in this way, unless I can lay it aside, this other experience, unless it meets these exact requirements, I will not believe. Do you have an ultimatum like that? Thomas did. But then something strange happens. And I, I think it's strange. It's something I hadn't really noticed before. After Thomas's ultimatum, which is like, I will not believe unless Jesus shows up and I touch his wounds. The next scene we see, he's hanging out with the disciples. I think this is very important. He very pointedly doesn't believe them, and yet he can still belong with them. We just heard 
at least three of the many reasons that people doubt, intense pain, fear, the cost of going on following Jesus. But I think in Thomas's story, you can at least see three reasons why people believe. One is other stories. As much as he initially resists their declaration, we have seen the Lord, he still opens up this small bit of curiosity. Maybe the beginning of hope begins to awaken in him. Maybe he's like, I'm at least going to stick around with you guys until I prove myself right. But he doesn't believe what the community that he's in believes, and yet he belongs. That has been one of our prayers for Trinity Grace Park Slope since we began. That no matter where you are at on the spectrum of faith and doubt, that you have a place here to belong. To ask your questions. To say you're full of it. Nice Britney Spears microphone, but I don't believe you. And that's fine. But this has also happened for some of you. In that space of belonging, where you were able to be honest about your questions, you heard someone else's story. And it opened a curiosity in you. It opened the beginning of hope in you. And you said, man, I, I don't believe like that person, but it would be nice. Or I haven't experienced something like this person has experienced, but I wish that I had. I wonder would God deal with me in the same way. I wonder if God would open up a possibility to me in the same way. And so other stories become carriers for belief. I've been sitting around on Monday mornings with the Trinity Grace Pastors and we've just had two new church plants get started, Williamsburg and Midtown. Let's clap for them. John was telling a story about a, a guy who came through Alpha in Midtown. Which Alpha, if you, if you want to join us with Alpha in Brooklyn, this, this next week on Tuesday is the, is the time, to, time to join. Because after that we're going to have been through too many roads together. And you'll have to wait for the next time. But if you want to join Alpha, 7 o'clock at the Trinity Grace Church office. Anyone that has any questions about God whatsoever, come there. There's also food. Midtown had run Alpha and this guy came through and it's, you know, Alpha is this opportunity just to ask spiritual questions in a friendly, safe environment and explore those ideas together. And this guy kind of got all the way through the Alpha program and he came to John and he's like, you know what? God doesn't make me want to believe in God. But this community makes me want to believe in God. And I think that's an interesting starting place. Other stories can certainly be a carrier towards belief. Belonging can certainly be a carrier towards belief. But eventually Thomas had to also have an encounter with Jesus. Verse 26. A week later his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Thomas had heard other stories and they opened his mind. Some smidgen of a possibility opened in his mind. He had had a place to belong for at least eight or seven or eight in pretty intense days where the disciples are hiding away behind locked doors and Thomas is in community with them even though he doesn't believe the fundamental claim that is knitting their community together. 
I love so many things about how Jesus reveals himself in these moments that are described here. The first is he's been unhurried. Almost the same way he was with Lazarus. He finds out Lazarus is sick and then it says, and then he chose to linger for three days. And then Lazarus dies and they say, Lazarus is dead. Now we definitely shouldn't go back. And he's like, no, I'm glad Lazarus is dead because something's going to happen that's going to be so profound and glorify God so much that you need to see it. I don't know why Jesus let Thomas linger for a week. But I do think it's, easy, it's interesting to see that Jesus is not like so frantic about what Thomas thinks that he rushes off to prove himself. He's unhurried. He was fine for a while to let other stories and belonging do their work. And then he deals with Thomas's ultimatum when he shows up, which I think is interesting. I don't know. We have no account that someone told Jesus what it would take for Thomas We know there are many moments where Jesus speaks to something that someone had dealt with alone. (laughs) When you were thinking of me under the fig tree, I knew about it. What? Jesus says stuff like that. He walks in and he delivers the exact proof that Thomas had said he required. He addresses the thing Thomas thought he needed most profoundly. But you realize in the encounter that that is so overwhelmed by something else. Most of our doubts (laughs) don't need proof to bring about certainty. We need to encounter the presence of God. This is presence, not proof. And Jesus shows up and reveals himself. And I'm not saying that there are not technical doubts to the the resurrection or or, or, or how is God involved in making the world that are not profoundly important. Facts that need to be dealt with, of course. But eventually we have to come to the place where we are embraced by and we embrace the actual presence of God. Because like Thomas's first question, how are we going to go if we don't know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. This entire world has been created by my Father in a relational context. Your doubt and faith find a home in love. And then after Jesus gives Thomas what he thought he needs, he calls him to something else. Commitment, not certainty. In the context of this relational moment, Jesus rebukes him. Right, we, said about, we talked about this story last week where Jesus defends the woman who's been caught in adultery and all the shame of that moment. She's drugged into the street, immediately caught in the act. And Jesus comes and he says those famous words, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. And then he goes up to her and he invites her into something more. Jesus walks up to Thomas and gives him exactly what he asked for. He protects him, he gives him proof He demonstrates himself and then he says, stop doubting and believe. Jesus knew that there was a better place for Thomas than to end in doubt. And that place was love. Doubt is certainly something that we will all pass through. Some sense we may always live with, but it is not an end in itself. It is a painful reality that we contend with where our deepest convictions are called into question and a ticker tape in our mind or heart. Our emotions don't seem to match up with our our mental assent to facts. There's discord and division in us and we feel doubt. Sometimes we feel it when we want to believe. Flannery uh, Flannery O'Connor said said this. I I think it's 
maybe hyperbolic on one level, but I think it's, there's a truth in here. I think there is no suffering greater than what is caused by the doubts of those who want to believe. I know what torment this is, but I can only see it, and myself anyway, as the process by which faith is deepened. A faith that just accepts as a child's, is a child's faith, and all right for children, but eventually you have to grow religiously as in every other way, though some never do. What people don't realize is how much religion costs. They think faith is a big electric blanket, when of course it is a cross. It's much harder to believe than not to believe. If you feel you can't believe, you must at least do this. Keep an open mind. Keep it open toward faith. Keep wanting it. Keep asking for it. And leave the rest to God. I think in the depth of Jesus' compassion, he knew the pain that Thomas Doubts had caused him. And he wants something more for him. Relationship. think if I would leave us with anything it's that love with God or with anybody requires commitment more than certainty and that's what Jesus calls Thomas to because he says stop doubting and believe and while Thomas's fingers are in the wounds of Jesus he says believe not know for certain it's the word pistos which means faith Stop doubting and have confidence in, in this, in me. Not just the facts, but in my character. Not just in this moment, but in my promises. He still requires faith even after this encounter. And this is the thing. So many of you have actually had, though not in the exact same way Thomas did, encounters with the risen Jesus. You felt his spirit speak to you. You've, you've felt the draw and invitation of his love. You've, you've, en- you've encountered him. Sometimes those encounters have been filled with emotion. Sometimes they've been like an epiphany in your mind as, as pieces came together. And yet you know that one-time encounter with him or encounters in the past is, is, is not enough on its own. You have to continually be encountering the risen Jesus. You have to continually pistos, believe. You are seeing this. Your hands are in my wounds and yet you're still going to have many moments where you have to have faith because doubt will crowd your mind. Thomas's next words are a unique declaration of love and commitment. My Lord, my God. These are the exact words that a Jewish man would use to declare Messiah. You are the promised one. It finally crashes into Thomas' heart that this is about relationship, that love requires commitment more than certainty. Thomas would go on to plant churches in what is now modern-day India. He would suffer greatly for, for his faith, for the love of Jesus. There would be many more moments when, we would have to, when he would have to believe in spite of moods, in spite of challenges, in spite of circumstances, right? That he would have to trust the character of God in spite of what was right in front of him. And doubting Thomas became faith-filled, courageous, maybe also pessimistic Thomas. So we're going to come to the table. This table which reminds us every week of the wounds of Jesus. In a sense, Christ says, come, put your hands in the wounds again. I'm willing to deal with the facts that you're wrestling with, but I have something better for you. It's called love. 
I have something I want to embrace you fully with. I think some of you this morning probably need to hear just this, that you cannot believe exactly like the rest of the people in this room and still be welcome here. That you can belong. That you can bring your questions as long as, they, as you have them because ultimately we're not trusting that this really great sermon that we have planned three weeks from now is going to be the thing that takes you over the line. It's only God, right? Only, and, and sometimes he's frustratingly unhurried. He is willing to let you sit amongst other people's stories and find a place of belonging. And then in very unexpected moments, he reveals himself to you in a way that you perfectly can sense and understand. But some of you, you know Jesus has revealed himself to you. You have felt the embrace of his love and you need to hear him say, in your face this morning, give it up. Stop doubting and believe. Stop protecting yourself with these claims of uncertainty and receive my love. Let your faith be restored. And if you do that, you will be blessed. Jesus says it in his last words in this passage. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to invite us to a few moments of silent consideration of how God might be speaking to us, to you as an individual, to us as a community, and then we're going to come to the table. Remember the wounds of Jesus. Remember the embrace of his love. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you're the type of God who reveals himself to Thomas in the story in exactly the way he needed. I think you are the type of God that's not afraid of our doubts. But I also thank you that you are a God with the type of love that can carry us to a different place, a place of commitment in spite of doubt. place of love and faith in spite of the brokenness of our world and our own hearts. So I pray in these moments of silence that you would speak to the hearts of the people in this room, to my own heart, and that you would give us ears to hear how we should respond, what statements of commitment should come from our lips, come from our hearts. Lead us in the rest of this service by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.